0: I'm Sean Cleary. I'm South African by origin. Our centre of gravity continues to be in Cape Town, South Africa, although I travel very widely and I'm on three continents, more or less every month And for many months. I was originally trained in macroeconomics and law with um, good smattering of associated social sciences and philosophy around it. I was a diplomat between 1970 and 1985 and I finished off that part of my life responsible for helping to run Namibia um, on its way to independence. I resigned from diplomatic service in 1985, set up a number of companies to address some of the challenges that we thought existed in southern Africa at that point in time, then found very quickly that uh, the same challenges not only affected the rest of Africa but also, essentially, all parts of the world outside of the OECD. So, from Latin America through Africa and the Middle East, extending out into parts of South Asia, the whole of Central Asia, and parts of Northeast Asia, there were some very similar circumstances. Foreign direct investment flowed in exceedingly small percentages of global FDI flows into those regions and at the same time, Africa to the fore, but all of those regions really, produced quite extraordinarily multiples of returns on foreign investment, so it was quite clear that there was a mismatch. It didn't take too much thinking to recognise that uh, what it really was was the Basel Regulations um, in respect of banking risk, which meant that you had to make ridiculously large provisions against putative risk, which quite frankly the banks didn't understand anyway, in order to be able to borrow to invest in those environments. So the cost of investing outside of the OECD rose disproportionately and we thought it was a good idea to find ways of minimising that in appropriate fashions. The way to solve it was to better define the nature of the risk associated with investments in those countries, thereby increasing opportunities for investment and developing far more effective risk mitigation techniques and risk pricing techniques, which was on average for a long period of time capable of cutting roughly 2% off the cost of debt and equity on the one hand and the cost of insurance on the other hand. That inevitably led one into a whole variety of non-profit areas at the same time because uh, addressing some of the underlying challenges associated with investment in those areas seemed to be a very sensible thing to do and so I got drawn into um, quite a lot of non-profit organisations as well as some organisations like the World Economic Forum and related areas where multi-stakeholder dialogue was very well established. The challenges that we face today are very largely a function of complexity. It's perfectly easy for two people speaking to one another to reach a collective understanding of the nature of a problem And it's not all that difficult for two people speaking to one another to reach agreement on how to address it. It's terribly difficult if you have 193 Mm. states, members of the United Nations, trying to reach consensus on any matter of any substance, of any importance in which interests diverge in significant ways as the experience of the European Union over the course of the last, I suppose, seven years, really, since the beginning of attempts to address the effects of the global economic crisis, have made perfectly clear it's very difficult to do it on the level of 28. It's even difficult to do it on the level of 17 or 18 in the context of the Eurozone. So, reaching collective agreement on what we think of as collective action at transnational scales is really difficult. And the more issues that we put onto the agenda, the more solutions that we try to find at scale, the less likely it is that political leadership will be able to find solutions to these challenges. So one part of the collapse of leadership today is not because we have a weaker generation of leaders It's because they're being asked to come up with solutions to problems which because of the level of interconnectivity and the speed at which change is occurring are quite frankly beyond the capabilities of collective leadership at the scales at which we're tackling them. If we're going to be successful in balancing democratic accountability at the national level with the need for collaboration in collective action at transnational scales in order to solve problems of the global commons, we have to determine at what scale we can solve what problem. Then we have to delineate much more carefully what rules of the game we're going to apply when balancing interests and seeking to prioritize values in ways that enable us to reach sensible conclusions. That debate hasn't really started yet. We managed to make a significant amount of progress in both the Paris Agreement on climate change and in Agenda 2030 in respect to the Sustainable Development Goals because we turned the process on its head. In the Paris Agreement, we shifted from what were called under Rio common but differentiated responsibilities to what became called in the process that Cristiana Figueres led uh, under UNFCCC to something that became known as nationally determined commitments. So it was bottom-up, it wasn't top-down, it wasn't somebody telling India what its obligations were and India saying sorry we didn't create the problem in the first place, you chaps in the West did. It shifted to a discussion about what can you as the United States, what can you as India, what can you as South Africa contribute to solving this problem and that changed the tenor of the debate, it aligned the interests, and it enabled solutions that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. The process out of which the Sustainable Development Goals emerged was one whereby national debates that were multi-stakeholder in character, involving youth, involving women, involving business, involving government, involving academia, involving other elements of civil society, developed in the first instance their sense of what the priorities ought to be at a global scale. That was then taken up in the form of a synthesis paper developed by the UN Secretariat, and then a United Nations General Assembly open access group then facilitated the synthesis of the outcomes of the national discussions using the synthesis paper as a point of departure. Now I don't think anything that consists of 17 goals and 157 indicators is going to be easy to implement but the important thing is we got agreement on something that we couldn't possibly have got agreement on otherwise because we took it bottom up. So I think that holds very important lessons about the future of global governance and I think it's going to relieve pressures on national governments if people recognise that there is collective responsibility, even at the national level, among different sectors of civil society to be able to address these challenges collectively. In South Africa, where I come from, that was the basis on which we did the National Peace Accord back in 1991. It was an initiative undertaken by business and the churches to which the political parties added themselves at a later stage the facilitating committee was purely business in the churches. The preparatory committee included representatives of the major political parties, and that which emerged as the National Peace Accord, the preamble of which formed the basis of what emerged as the framework for the constitutional discussions and significantly informed the preamble to the constitution in South Africa was a process that couldn't have been achieved among the political parties, the political actors in the first instance, because they were at loggerheads. They had fundamentally different interests. So you had to facilitate a debate to bring about an alignment of interests in constructive ways by people who had an interest in the outcome, but not necessarily a dog in the fight in the process through which it would emerge. That, I think, is the challenge that we face today uh, on a global scale.